thing is, fusion is hard. All of us have technology challenges that need to be solved, and that's why working together is very, very important. We need you. We need the great people coming in to help with this, and there are exciting challenges. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about a path to commercialization for fusion power. I love talking about fusion in this way because I believe commercial fusion could be here sooner than a lot of folks expect. To hear at least one of my guests explain it, investors don't spend money on technologies that are a generation away. For those that did not check out my earlier episodes, particularly episode 20, fusion is the process of combining atoms to create helium. This is typically done by combining hydrogen isotopes, deuterium and tritium, or DT. This creates a super hot plasma, which is confined with magnets. It's been referred to on this show as humanity's get-out-of-jail-free card, inexhaustible, emission-free, abundant baseload energy. Most futurists would tell you that this is what our great-grandkids will be powering their lives with. The key is that in order for these generations before us to enjoy fusion, we have to be commercial in the next few years. There's nothing like fusion to make you realize your own mortality. For instance, if we demonstrate commercial plasma in 10 years, we could build a utility-scale plant in another 10. Another 15 years for utilities to get comfortable, another 10 to build the plants on a wide scale, 30 to 40 more years to have this become commonplace, I would be 75 by the time the second wave would be built. During this episode, we discussed the technological but also the regulatory challenges involved. And this is what could be the most pivotal hurdle in fusion. During the same conference, this episode's panel was recorded. I also set up a panel with former project managers who had worked on the VC summer expansion that failed in 2017. A lot of those issues revolved around the near impossible compliance with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's 10 CFR 51 regulations. For my guests today, many of whom are private companies, to have to build a fusion plant under these standards is a potential deal killer. They believe the material involved in the fusion process is far less fizzle than their fission industry counterparts and are hoping for a little regulatory mercy. It's one of the reasons I prefer to refer to the technology as fusion power rather than nuclear fusion. In fact, I don't know if this meeting ever took place, but one of my fusion guests had set up a lunch meeting with none other than Leonardo DiCaprio to discuss their fusion technology. I remember telling him, be sure to tell Leo it's fusion power, fusion power. Repeating myself just like one of Leo's most memorable lines is my belief that despite the challenges involved in fusion, Fusion is definitely the way of the future. The way, the way of, of the future. future. The way of the future. The way of the future. My guests today include four leaders in the fusion power space. Michael Capello, Senior Vice President of Prototype Deployment for General Fusion. Tyler Ellis, Senior Advisor for Commonwealth Fusion Systems. Kathy McCarthy, the Director of the U.S. Eater Project. And Artem Smirnov, CTO of TAE Technologies. They made up a panel I hosted for the North American Young Generation in Nuclear Carolinas conference last October. As you heard in episode 99, I was asked to come back a second year, and this 
this was the second year in a row I pitched Fusion as a topic. This year, not only did they say yes, we opened the four-day virtual event with this panel. I asked each panelist to explain briefly what makes their technologies unique. You can find the link to these slides in the show description, and despite their differences, you can tell they're all focused on the same goal. I hope you enjoy my panel, Our Fusion Future. All right. The conference is officially in session. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jay Dowenhauer. I'm the host of the EnergyCast podcast. The first thing I'd like to do is talk a little bit about where we are in nuclear. And it's an exciting time. You got Gen 4, SMRs, Vogel 3 and 4. And the company that's hosting us has committed to net zero carbon by 2050 with a lot of benchmarks along the way. And I think we all know how we're going to get to net zero carbon. It can't be done without nuclear. One of the other things that we're really excited about is fusion power. And I think it says a lot about this organization that you're starting off your conference talking about fusion. It's been a real treat for me to get to know these people over the last few years. My first contact ever made in fusion was for the 20th episode I did of my little podcast. I interviewed Steve Dean, who's with Fusion Power Associates. He's in DC. He's kind of the glue for the entire fusion industry, if you will. That was a good start. And he also got me in touch with with TAE Technologies, who I went on to interview, they're a guest today, as well as inviting me to a Fusion Power Conference in December of 2018. And when you get invited to go to a Fusion Power Conference, you go. That was a chance for me to meet a lot of the companies that we're talking to today. So if everybody who's our guest, if you can light up your cameras, we'll get started. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> Thank you. What a good looking bunch here. I'll go ahead and introduce everybody really quickly. We have Michael Capello. He goes by Capello, Senior Vice President of of prototype development for Fusion and Capello, you also were with TAE for a little while, so full disclosure there, right? Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Tyler Ellis, Senior Advisor for Commonwealth Fusion Systems. They're out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Kathy McCartney, Director of the U.S. Eater Project. You may be familiar with Eater in France. This is the U.S. arm of that effort, and she's also at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. I had a chance to visit Oak Ridge a few years ago. It was a very moving experience, just all the history involved there. And then Artem Smirnov, CTO of TAE Technologies. You may a couple of years ago have recognized them as Tri Alpha Energy, but they're TAE. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And those who are listening, these are the heavy hitters in this industry. So you're getting to meet a lot of the major players today. And it is a real treat to have you on. And one of the things that we asked all of our panelists to do is to set the table for us. And so I asked them to give us one slide each. I want you to explain your technology, also what your fuels are, because I think it's not the same for everyone. And what's your competitive advantage? I know we're all friends here, but let's point that out too if we can. Let's go with Capello. Tell us about General Fusion. Absolutely, Jay. Thank you and welcome everybody. General Fusion started out about 15 years ago with an idea. They were looking again to address the high energy neutrons that are a byproduct of the deuterium tritium fusion process. Very similar to how TAE got started also with Dr. Rostocker looking for a solution for the high energy neutrons. So they approached it from an industry perspective and they worked backwards and said, okay, what technologies are out there that we could use materials that are here today and actually be able to develop a predictable, reliable heat source that could then be used to power a power plant. So 
they chose a technology that's referred to as magnetized target fusion. It was actually first developed by the U.S. Navy back in the 1970s. And it was, can we spit a plasmoid into a rotating liquid metal and crush it before the plasma has any chance to misbehave? And those that have magnetic confinement fusion will share with you the challenges of creating a plasma and holding it into perpetuity in a confined magnetic field. So this is a fairly unique approach. I like to refer to it as the Duramax diesel of fusion. It relies on mechanical engineering systems. We don't have big superconducting magnets. We don't have expensive neutral beams or particle beams. The heating occurs based on a mechanical push of some 300 pistons that are synchronized that can collapse the volume of the plasma 1001, which will get you to the kind of temperatures that you're looking for. The big physics challenges for this approach is the plasma interface with the liquid metal wall. As most of you in the power industry know, liquid metal has been used as a medium for a long time, both in nuclear and, of course, thermal solar, collective solar type power plants use a liquid sodium. The liquid metal acts as a neutron shield, so we don't have the first wall issues that other approaches have. It's a great breeder for the tritium. So we can generate all the tritium we need for self-consumption. It's bred with some lithium in the lead wall for the commercial plant. And the company's been developing a lot of test stands and we've tested out all the major components. And we're just now starting to build the first large utility relevant scale demonstration of all these systems working together, including our large plasma injectors, our servo high-speed control pistons, and the rotating liquid metal rotor on the inside of this vessel. So basically, just like a diesel. We blow the fuel in there. We're using deuterium tritium, not in the demonstration plant, but for the commercial plant. We'll collapse that volume, get it to fusion conditions, pull the heat out of the liquid metal with a standard industry heat exchanger, and unfortunately spin a 150-year-old steam system on the back end, at least initially. You know, it'll be a Brayton or Rankin cycle when they eventually get the supercritical CO2 back ends to the size that we need. That might be an interesting technology to couple onto this thing. So again, general fusion is traded off a lot of the physics issues for engineering issues. There's a lot of engineering challenges of getting this many pistons to crush the plasma equally so it doesn't spit out into the liquid metal. So that, in a nutshell, is how magnetic target fusion works. <laughs> it's that simple. Thank you so much, Capella. Appreciate you. You bet, Jay. Going on, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, CFS. Tyler Ellis, Senior Advisor, Commonwealth Fusion Systems. Tell us about your design. Thank you very much for having me. The avenue that CFS is pursuing is basically the exact same area that most of the investment that's gone into fusion over the past several decades has gone into, which is magnetic confinement approach, and specifically in a form known as a tokamak. Since the 1970s, the United States has invested about 29 billion dollars into developing tokamak technology. And you'll hear a little bit more about it from the next speaker talking about ITER. The thing that we do, which is different than ITER, is that we leverage high temperature superconductors, so-called REPCO materials, and then incorporate those into much more powerful superconducting magnets that have been made before. So what this allows us to do is to shrink down the size of ITER to a fairly modestly sized four to $500 million facility that will demonstrate few greater than one in the 2025 timeframe. And if you actually utilize the same assumptions that either uses for its performance and, and scale-up, then the Spark facility will actually be able to demonstrate uh, up to 10 times more energy that is put out than is put in to run the machine. 
Speaking of Eater, we'll go right into Eater. Kathy? Thanks for the lead-in, Tyler, and thank you, Jay. As has been said, Eater is based on tokamak technology and is, in the world of fusion, the most mature, which doesn't mean that any of it is actually mature, but we're certainly, in terms of the database, we're accessing the largest database. And Eater was specifically designed using known technologies. Now, I said technologies because in some cases we're actually putting these technologies together in a way that has never been done before. So there is some first of a kind, primarily in the area of engineering. ITER itself is gonna demonstrate the feasibility of fusion energy, including achieving sustained fusion power, 500 megawatts for up to 3000 seconds. It's never been done before and it will demonstrate a burning plasma. What that means is that the plasma is self-heated and it is based on deuterium tritium fuel. And again, the reason for that is it is based on where we know the most, DT reactions are among the easiest to actually make happen. There are multiple partners in this, seven partners, the EU, China, India, Japan, Korea, Russia, and the US. It represents more than 50% of the world's population, 80% of the world's GDP. And one of the things that's really unique about ITER is that the tokamak assembly is actually underway. So all the support buildings, you can see there the aerial view, the support buildings, the infrastructure is there and now the tokamak assembly is starting now this will be the first fusion device categorized as a nuclear installation it's being built as was said earlier in southern france and therefore must go through the regulatory process in france and that by itself is quite a large accomplishment because it is going to be the first time for this sort of action for a fusion device and yes, it's got the largest vacuum vessel in the world, largest cryoplant, tons of superconducting magnets, low temperature, as you heard from Tyler, and the largest stacked superconducting solenoid ever. So it's not so much the fact that it's big that is the important piece. It's that in building these things, there's a lot that's being learned. And so broadly, what's going on in ITER is very much paving the way and really lending results and providing results that are relevant for the other activities that are going on, these other fusion devices that are under development. And all of it is extremely important. You wanna have multiple pathways. This is a very challenging problem. And so ITER is very much looking to and working towards sharing what's being learned to those other technologies. And with that, I will pass on to the next person. My wife and I are actually in France last year, and it really was painful to not be able to work in a visit out there. We just were in the wrong part of the country. Maybe some other time we can get to actually go out there and see it. Yeah, well, one thing very quickly that I should have mentioned, you see this picture in the lower left-hand corner. That's actually the cryostat base being lowered into the tokamak pit. That is a more greater than two-ton structure that was placed with tolerances within three millimeters. So again, really important engineering demonstration. So, sorry, Jay. Incredible, incredible, Kathy. And then finally, TAE Technologies, Artem, tell us about TAE's fusion machine. Thanks, Jay, and thanks for having us. Hi, everyone. TAE's approach to fusion is based on an alternative plasma configuration called Field Reverse Configurational, or FRC for short. And the key advantage that it offers really stems from the fact that it's a high plasma beta configuration. And beta is a conventional parameter used in plasma physics. This is a ratio of your plasma pressure to the confining magnetic field pressure. This is a highly efficient configuration which can be made very compact and high power density, which opens 
a pathway towards aneutronic fuel capabilities, aneutronic fuels. In other words, fuels that do not generate neutrons and therefore are much more benign and technologically friendly. Moreover, this configuration is linear, as you can see in this schematic. The FRC is that bright blob in the very middle in the confinement section, and it's sustained with high-energy particle injection. We use high-power neutral beams to sustain and make this configuration stable. So the simple linear geometry, as opposed to Tokamax, offers much easier design and maintenance. And Proton-born 11 fuel, which is our ultimate goal, is a very benign, readily available fuel. It produces almost no neutrons and therefore generates very little radioactive waste. And in our science program so far, we attained confinement superiority with this FRC model. So we're very confident that conditions for aneutronic fuel burn can actually be realized with this configuration. Artem, thank you so much. And everybody, I want to thank you so much for your brevity. Let's go right into the questions. The first thing, we'll keep this kind of light right now. You're at at dinner. You tell people you work in the fusion sector. What do you get the most tired of hearing? Well, I think one of the big things for me is kind of the perpetual joke of fusion always being 40 years away, 20 years away, 30 years away. I think that was potentially true earlier, but now the fact that there is about $2 billion of private capital into the market, there's at least 22 different private companies that are all pursuing their own versions of fusion energy, try and make it as capital light as possible. And many of the companies are targeting commercial deployment in the 2030s timeframe and demonstration by 2025 timeframe. So when you're talking about that type of situation, private dollars don't get invested into things that are perpetually 40 years away. There's a lot of key enabling technologies in the case of us, high temperature superconductors that allow us to make more powerful magnets but more powerful simulation tools and a variety of other things that really, the situation is different now. I think the game is different now, given that a lot of these fusion concepts are actually competing with advanced fission concepts for deployment time frame. Yeah, Jay, I'm just glad somebody's talking about fusion over dinner. I don't get tired of anything, <laughs> say, so it's no problem. For me, if I may chime in here, what comes up oftentimes when you say fusion, a lot of people seem to confuse fusion with fission and believing nuclear that is really synonymous with fission. And then the conversation just goes into the fear of radioactive meltdown. And I have to explain and convince everyone that fusion is different fundamentally, that it has this negative feedback built into it. So if something goes wrong with the reaction, it just stops and you fundamentally cannot run any risk of any nuclear disaster, and that's tend to catch people's attention and kind of stick in their heads. I'll also point out that I think, Artem, you and I have actually had lunch before. We've actually had conversations about this literally yes. over lunch. Well, uh, I wouldn't expect a question like that from you. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Kathy, do you hear anything different? Yeah, you know, so I, I would certainly get on the bandwagon of, gosh, why is it taking so long? And sometimes the conversation starts, well, they did that on Star Trek. How can it be so hard? They had a fusion reactor that was powering the Enterprise. And the thing is, fusion is hard. And there are a lot of very, very challenging problems. And so when you look at the broad range of confinement concepts, and it's great that all of these are going on, Mother Nature isn't typically kind. Something might be easier here. It's typically harder here. So all of us have technology challenges that need to be solved. And that's why working together is very, very important. But I would say for the NAYGN folks out there, 
we need you. We need the great people coming in to help with this. And there are exciting challenges. I did my graduate work in fusion quite a while ago. <laughs> I won't say exactly when. I spent half my career in fusion and half in fission. And what I can tell you is I love working in the fusion field. I came back to it specifically to come back to fusion, to work on Eater because I was familiar with it because the challenges are great and the people are great. So Great field, you guys. Yeah. Among your different core technologies, this idea of deuterium and tritium and in that conference I told you about that I attended, there was a lot of talk about the tritium breeders, right? So how big of a challenge is that to overcome and especially make that where you'd have a sustainable amount once a facility would be commercial? Yeah. So if I can step in here, my graduate work was actually on the technology side, fusion blankets, and it is a challenge. And the real challenge is you can do these calculations and you can get a tritium breeding ratio greater than one, but until you actually accurately model everything, there are so many losses, so many places that tritium gets sucked up. And it's really important to look at all of that. So it's kind of like the more you know, the more you understand that tritium breeding is a challenge. So if you look specifically at what's being done in ITER and how can this help all the other DT fuel cycle fusion machines, one of the things that we have to do is be able to scale up tritium exhaust processing. And so that's something that's being done for Eater. And it's not something that you can just do overnight, even though it's been demonstrated at smaller scale. Whenever you scale just about anything up, you find new challenges. And I can point to issues we've had in various of the technology areas. So again, that's one of the things that's really useful about Eater is these things are actually being built and will be run. And that helps the other folks. At commercial scale, I mean, 500, yeah, scale. yeah, right, 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 right. Now, TAE, you're not doing tritium, right? You're using hydrogen. Anybody else? It's a technology that ought to be developed, but one other thing to point out is tritium is commercially available from several different entities, both in the United States and around the world. So there is a pretty significant supply with which to draw upon, specifically, you know, exhaust from candles. What's the price per pound? It was pretty expensive at this yeah, point. Yeah, but it's kind of similar to, you know, uranium fuel prices and fission. The cost of the fuel is a pretty small part. And even if you were to have a pretty significant change in the cost of the fuel, it's not going to change your net price of electricity very much. Right on. Capella? Yeah, I just want to echo what Kathy was saying. We first learned from Eater and then look for an alternative approach to it. And that was really one of the technologies that the founder of General Fusion, Dr. Michelle LaBerge was looking at was what technology will give us a good breeding ratio and how can we contain it and minimize parasitic losses of the tritium. Tyler's 100% right. You can go buy tritium commercially. And we believe based on all the modeling and calculations we've done, we'll be able to generate enough tritium within our system that will be self-sustaining. And we're dealing with significantly less volumes than what Kathy has to deal with at Eater. We're dealing with volumes that are less than what a lot of fission nuclear plants free release. So I think we'll be okay. We've got the liquid metal to entrain it, and we haven't finalized what technology we're going to use to extract the tritium out of the liquid lead, liquid lithium, but probably some sort of gettering type technology that we can strip it off with. But all that's still under development. Well, you know, one of the things that you brought up, the way you put it was a lot of these technologies that make up your core system are quote unquote off the shelf. And most people wouldn't think that a fusion machine would have off the shelf components. Maybe that's why, a, what was it, like a 12 year old kid made a fusion machine and TAE, I saw your social media, you actually had them over at your facility. But what is the biggest 
technological challenge for your machines right now, other than maybe scaling it up? So I mean, every technological approach has different aspects that they're really seeking to demonstrate. But we think that one of the common things that we've heard from investors is the need to see a fully integrated demonstration facility. Investors are really more focused on seeing all of the technology that are necessary to work together rather than just demonstrate one component over here, one component over here, and then if you combine them together, then it'll be fine. Yeah, and if I can add, I think that an area that has gotten, I think, far less investment than overall in the machine is the technology area, the whole reading tritium, energy conversion, how do you get the heat out? When you look at the U.S. fusion program, it's been very much focused on the physics side, the confinement and, and the experiments have been as well. Now, ITER is not a technology demonstration machine. However, it will have some test blanket modules, for example. But I think that's an area that could be funded better by the U.S. government. I always have to be careful when you say these things. But when DOE went to developing the science underlying fusion energy, as opposed to actually developing fusion energy, there was a big decrease in the technology side. So I think overall, it's the technology side that has been underfunded. And that's relevant to, I think, all of us. I got a couple of questions here. One's from Dan Monahan. Are you intending for commercial plants to be grid-connected electron generators? Or are you looking into broader product forms like high-quality heat or hydrogen fuel carriers? All the above, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it kind of widely applies to all, given the higher temperatures that are capable with many of the intermediate coolants. And we hear this conversation a lot with SMRs, right? They can kind of do everything, right? Jeremy Miller said, I read a recent article that a near room temperature semiconductor was achieved. How important is this with regards to magnetic containment? Yeah, I think magnetic confinement. The interesting thing about the Repco superconductors is that this is a technology that was kind of a Nobel Prize level discovery in the 1980s when it came out, but it takes industry many decades to figure out how to manufacture it at scale. If you can demonstrate individual crystals in a laboratory setting, that's interesting, but until you can actually make that and fabricate that into an industrially relevant form that you can actually use to take advantage of the attributes of that material. That's the lagging time. With the case of high temperature superconductors, it took industry several decades to figure out how to manufacture it into large tapes that you can wind those tapes into cables and then make magnets out of. There's always new technology which is coming out and the higher and higher temperature that these new superconductors can be developed at, that is great. And we always welcome that. But right now, the current state of the art that is industrially relevant forms and industrially relevant quantities are the Repco superconductors. Yeah. David Hugel asks, I have always heard that fusion is mostly materials problem. This kind of goes to Tyler's. This is one more materials question. Can folks speak to the materials concerns such as how long the structural supporting materials last? And also, are these rare materials? Are these readily available? Yes. It's not so much that the materials themselves are rare. It is a matter of the fusion environment is a harsh environment, right? You have, depending on your concept, you'd have high neutron wall load, high heat flux, that makes it challenging for materials. And so one of the important things is likely going to be the ability to change out components quickly, change out the first wall. And one of the things that we've done at Oak Ridge National Laboratory is we're developing an experiment, MPEX, to actually look at those material-plasma interactions, a material actually seeing the environment of a fusion machine. And again, that's another thing that's relevant broadly here. 
One of the things that really struck me, Artem, was that your facility is basically in an office park. These are concerns that you would probably have if this was more of a fizzle issue. So what would a regulatory environment look like, especially compared to our fission counterparts who have to basically undergo every single regulatory compliance under the sun? Is there NERC compliance with fusion? Who is the authorizing body and how stringent is it? is pursuing fusion through the hydrogen boron fuel cycle, which is PB11, which is a neutronic. And as far as technological challenges, we're trading off more straightforward and easy to implement engineering for higher scientific challenges up front. And because this burning PB11 fuel requires superior confinement and operational conditions. However, we've achieved the breakthroughs that convince that, that the technology can reach the PB11 relevant reactor conditions. Fundamentally, this aneutronic path has much lesser regulatory issues than DT. In fact, it is comparable to the production of medical isotopes for nuclear medicine and PET scans and things like that. And we expect to ultimately find a licensing regime to reflect these facts and hence to be of lighter touch compared with our fission counterparts. Yeah, one of the two highlights on the, the Fusion Industry Association is actually pursuing specifically on the regulatory front is we've been advocating for regulatory treatment under the Office of Material Safety and Safeguards. So this is the material side of Dewey rather than under Part 50, 52, or the new discussed Part 53. That is an important aspect because it really recognizes a lot of the key differences of fusion technology versus fission technology, given that there's no source material, there's no special nuclear material. These are really the key attributes that the NRC looks at. When you're looking at a technology, fusion does produce neutrons and even aneutronic, there's secondary reactions that do produce neutrons. So the neutron dose in DPA does have to be dealt with for pretty much all of the fusion technology designs out there. But we do think that since tritium is a byproduct material, it can be very effectively handled under 10 CFR part 30 and part 20. So that is the position that the Fusion Industry Association has been advocating for with the NRC DOE and other critical stakeholders. Yeah, the rules are already written, right? Yeah, the rules are already written and it'd be a pretty straightforward way of applying them just because currently the best case study example that we have is Phoenix. So Phoenix makes deuterium tritium neutron generators in the state of Wisconsin and the state of Wisconsin, which is an agreement state, already regulates this facility. So we actually already have a case study example of the NRC and agreement states specifically treating the regulatory oversight of fusion-related systems. So we think that for all the near-term development systems as well as potential future commercial systems, it would be appropriate to treat it the same way just because the risk profile is very different from that of vision side and it contains very different materials. Yeah. Kathy, you're kind of setting the standard for the commercial size, 500 megawatts. Everybody, what do you see your commercial size unit being? Is it like AP1000? Is there an upper limit? What is your target commercial size at this point? I can share that with you on General Fusion's approach. We're not thinking the big behemoth machines. We're not looking to build a gigawatt or two gigawatt. We're thinking with distributive load and where the new power generation needs to be built between now and 2040. I mean, it's like a four or five trillion dollar marketplace. We believe that the smaller distributed machines are the sweet spot, sort of the same concept that the SMRs had. So we're thinking a couple of hundred megawatts and you can six pack them together if you want a gigawatt machine. But we think it makes sense. 
on a smaller scale, especially if you're going to use this for replacement power. This technology, because of what Tyler just said earlier and Artem also about the benign safety profile, these power producing machines could be located right within a city limit. You're not going to do that with a fission plant. I think the smaller, the better. The other key thing to remember, there's no fuel infrastructure, right? There's no coal piles, there's no gas lines, there's no front-end nuclear production, nuclear fuel production facilities. These are really going to fit well wherever the current infrastructure is. And a lot of your attendees, if they're out of the utility industry, they know how difficult it is to get new right-of-way and build new infrastructure. So really, wherever the switchyards are, you should be able to place any one of these fusion technologies that are smaller. An eater is a monster-sized plant that's going to take a lot more space, but these smaller compact devices like Commonwealth and TAE and ourselves, we believe we could find a nice niche within or close to cities and close to populations where the power is needed. So I think I need to point out that the size of the eater was not chosen to be a demonstration facility, a demonstrator of commercial fusion. It was chosen because in general for fusion, bigger is easier when you look at the physics. And the other thing, too, is Eater's an experimental facility. So when you look at diagnostics and things like that and the space that all of that takes up, that's a lot of what sets the footprint. So nobody should mistake Eater for a demonstration of a commercial plant. It's not what it was meant to be. So it's going to have that larger footprint. Yeah, from the CFS perspective, when we set out to really analyze the power market, the lion's share of the power facilities out there are more modestly sized, like one to 200 megawatt electric size. Uh, only certain parts of the world that are building large gigawatt style facilities like China and places that are trying to rapidly electrify. Uh, in the United States, we're predominantly a country of modestly sized power plants, you know, one to 200 megawatts electric. So to answer another question in the chat, as far as timeline, our goal is demonstrating that Q greater than two from Spark by 2025. And our company was founded for the sole purpose of putting commercial megawatts on the grid by the early 2030s, because if you're not doing that, it's pretty tough to have a significant impact on climate change. So our first commercial power demonstration unit we call ARC, which is 200 megawatts electric, we plan on having coming on the grid in the early 2030s. 2032 time frame. Yeah. These questions that we're getting are great. I'm going to combine two of them. One's from Amanda Lang. She basically says, even with advanced nuclear technologies having passive safety, et cetera, that's not being built by utilities right now in the U.S. So what makes fusion different from advanced nuclear in terms of actual implementation? And then we also had Roger Matamoros could breakthroughs in Gen 4 dilute the investment in fusion. How do you see all these new fission technologies coming online and starting to be commercialized? How do you see that? That affecting your efforts? I kind of view them as all additive. I mean, when you look at the problem and the challenge of having to scale up CO2 free energy generation, there's very limited technologies that can actually scale up <laughs> within the paradigms of the grid. So, I mean, I kind of view it as all of the CO2 free technologies should be deployed as fast as humanly possible because if we grow all of them as fast as possible, then we might have a shot getting to the goal of a CO2-free grid. I don't view it as a zero-sum game. I think it'd be, we'd be beneficial in our industry to not think about it as a zero-sum game, but in fact, encourage all the different concepts and all the different technological approaches for it. I think it's kind of all of the above strategy rather than an either-or. Yeah, I think that Tyler is absolutely right on that. And we recently at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, we formed a new directorate. I came in to be the U.S. EATER Project Director. I still have responsibility for EATER but I also have responsibility for the domestic fusion program and also our fission program. 
there's a lot that can be learned from those. And one of the things I'll tell you that we in fusion can learn from the fission community is that ability to be disciplined, follow codes and standards. And while I understand our source term is different, I believe in general, we in the fusion community underestimate the regulatory needs. And I'm all for a different regulatory structure. There are those discussions going on under NRC, but in order to use something other than what the fission reactors are using, you've got to change regulations in the NRC because power on the grid means you fall under the US NRC if you're nuclear. And my experience in the fission industry, I think, has been really helpful as I take that to fusion. Kathy, you're wearing a lot of hats. I hope you're wearing your seatbelt. <laughs> We'd hate to lose you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just want to offer one thing on that because the commercial megawatts on the grid doesn't necessarily invoke NRC treatment of the facility. You actually go in, it's the presence of fourth material and special nuclear material and or byproduct material that would necessitate that. Because one of the central aspects, the Fusion Industry Association developed a whole regulatory white paper that actually analyzed specifically how the fusion industry could be treated from a regulatory standpoint, and specifically what is codified in NRC restrictions and all that sort of thing. The commercial megawatts isn't actually the threshold with which the NRC would assert jurisdiction. It actually has to do more with presence of source material, spectral nuclear material, and that sort of thing. Yeah, tritium does complicate things a bit. Just got to put that out there. And the byproduct material is taken care of under 10 CFR Part 30 rather than 50 or 52. Hey, Tyler, I don't mean to put words in Kathy's mouth, but I think she She's referring to the NRC position paper that came out in 09. And when we pulled the string on that, you're 100% right. We went back to the source documents, to the historical records, to the Atomic Energy Act, and there wasn't anything that said because you were putting megawatts on the grid. But there is a common understanding out there as a result of the NRC publishing that SECI document in 09. I think they actually have created a misunderstanding in the industry about what is required to be regulated on 10 CFR 50. 51 and hopefully 53 in the future. But not to demean in any way, it's going to be the single biggest obstacle to whether the United States emerges as the early adopter of this technology because we're all private companies and we're going to go where the market tells us to go and who's willing to put up the money to build these machines. And we hope it's North America, but that's still yet to be seen depending on how predictable the regulatory regime is at the end of the day. Let's talk about financing real quick, especially these private companies here. Do you feel like DOE is giving Fusion a sufficient amount of interest? <laughs> yeah, Kathy said earlier that the government has been really negligent in not funding Fusion development at a higher level. I mean, look at the money that we spent on wind and solar development and compare that to what we're spending now on Fusion out of the government. Neither has the lion's share, of course, and rightly so. That's where most of this science is being developed. But the U.S. government has not put out sufficient funding for this development, and that's forced us to go private funding route in order to keep up the pace of our technology development. Yeah, I mean, with CFS, we raised about $200 million so far from a wide variety of advanced investors like Bill Gates through Breakthrough Energy Ventures, a couple of multinational oil companies, and several others. What our plan is, is we can do what we seek to do entirely with private funding. And that's what we're planning to do, which is admittedly a higher risk pathway. But I do think that there's a number of different mechanisms for the public and private sector to work together. So there's a number of public-private partnership programs which are useful, like Infuse. These are working on generic technologies that are kind of useful to everybody. And then the other thing that's actually really exciting is the DOE and Congress are considering a large cost share program, which would actually help the private companies demonstrate these large facilities. So 
I'm sure you all are familiar with the advanced reactor demonstration program. The fusion cost share program is actually based on NASA COTS, which is a milestone-based program where kind of all of the risk of on the private industry to hit achieve milestones. And it's a 50-50 cost share to deliver these new facilities. So there's actually a lot of excitement and interest from the DOE and other parts of the government to work with the private industry, which is great. I think we're in the early stages of that because everyone's recognizing that, wow, fusion is really a lot further advanced than what we thought it was. Maybe we should really ramp up some of these public-private partnership programs to really help them get to market faster so that we can have multiple shots on goal to get the fusion energy and not just the mainline program. We should invest in some of these higher risk avenues because you never know where innovation comes from. Just to add to Tyler's point here, I think this very exciting recent initiatives with public-private partnerships coming out of DOE and the cost-sharing program, they're really recognizing the immense progress that's being done on the privately funded side with well over $1 billion invested in fusion in over 20 private fusion companies recently. There's no doubt that fusion is fast approaching. So the more we can accelerate it through any PPP model, the better for the humankind, for everyone. One technical question I got from Amanda Lang again. Have you reached the break-even energy point with this configuration? Are you hoping the industry-scale demonstration plant will achieve that? So basically, it takes a lot of energy to get that plasma, right? And the goal right now, I don't think, is to have a sustainable hours-long plasma, right? That takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of energy. What's your plan for that? How are you showing a net positive energy performance there? The best performing facility so far is Jet in the UK. They've gotten to a Q of about 0.7. Q is the main term that most people in the fusion industry use to demonstrate energy out divided by the heating energy that goes in. That was all with kind of a tokamak topology. EFS just published a series of seven different papers in the Journal of Plasma Physics, so peer-reviewed document, where we were describing the fact that our spark facility would demonstrate Q well above two. And then if you actually apply the eater paradigms, that it would get up to perhaps 10 times more energy out than what puts in. I think these facilities are very much on the cusp of demonstrating that. We plan to demonstrate that by 2025 uh, in one commercial generation in the early 2030s. Artem, I interviewed Michael Benderbauer about two years ago. He's your CEO at TAE. One of the things that we talked about was this idea of in a fusion future. We're past the first units and now this is available to the world, right? Do you still have a world that has coal plants? Let's just say with carbon capture, natural gas, conventional fission. I think that was a question that we had here on this chat side. Or is fusion the best and only option you really need? Are there other energy generating sources out there if widespread, small, large commercial nuclear fusion is available? Well, we certainly expect that fusion will coexist with all power generation technologies. They all come with their advantages and disadvantages, various attributes, timelines. And at some point in the future, the marketplace will ultimately decide which subset will carry us deeper into this century and beyond. Certainly, we're moving away from carbon-heavy ways of generating electricity. I'm not sure about the coal plants, but certainly fission, renewables, and fusion together look like a good mix going into the future. Yeah, power plants are really long-lived assets, too. I mean, at the bare minimum, they're 40-year assets, but really they're probably close to like almost 100-year assets. So if you look at the timeline to turn over a fleet where the asset is up to 100 years long, that's a pretty slow turnover. <laughs> Any sort of a transition we're going to have is going to occur slowly over time. Jay, I'd like to 
amplify that. Artem and Tyler are 100% on the money. I mean, you know the utility industry, right? We're going to have to have enough runtime to prove out the capacity factor and reliability factor of this technology before a lot of power generators are going to sign on to swap out their fleet, right? And as Tyler just indicated, that takes time. It'll be a 20-year burn-in period where everybody's working out the bugs and demonstrating reliability, availability, and maintainability of this new technology. So it's not going to be an overnight turn the switch and all carbon's gone. It's going to be more of what Artem said, and it'll be a joint portfolio of power generation for most any power generator. But there could be those that get so excited about this new technology, they may be bold enough to try to do it exclusively, but I don't think their business plan would allow that. Getting close to the end here, we promised we'd ask this, what job opportunities do you have and what do people need to be studying, focusing in on? Do you plan to start increasing headcount anytime soon? Hey, Kathy, maybe there's some opportunities for you guys who like going to France. At Oak Ridge National Laboratory, we've got many job postings out there now, and it's all ranges of things. Do you like working on the physics, the technology? Do you want to work with one of the privately funded, because that's another emphasis of ours, is to work with the privately funded fusion reactors? Do you want to work with France? All different fields, right? So engineers, physicists, people who understand looking at things from an experimental perspective. So yes, we've got tons of job postings out there. Great work. So please do take a look at them. Now for private companies. One, I encourage everyone to go to cfs.energy. We have our jobs posted up there. I think we have 25 open positions that we're looking for actively right now. We just passed internally 100 full-time employees in CFS, and we work with another 140 people at MIT and other collaborators. So we have a pretty sizable team, and we're still planning on growing it pretty quickly. So I would highly encourage you to go to the website and check it out because we need talent from all across the board. We're the same way, Jay. We've hired, I think, 16, 17 people in the last 30 days. We're definitely in a hiring mode. You know, we're well-funded. We're picking up steam on our demonstration design. It's exciting if you have engineers that want to create and be innovative and come up with good solutions in a close-knit team environment. You know, Private Fusion is a great place to do that. It's definitely cutting-edge technologies. It's definitely a place to find employment right now. And if I may just advertise for TEE, I think it's great to witness how the privately funded fusion companies are growing rapidly are hiring. We're all on the same page in this trajectory of growth and bringing more resources to this noble cause. There is certainly no shortage of jobs in the privately funded fusion industry, which is exciting for me, who has been in this privately funded area for a while now. When I was coming out of grad school, I think it was maybe one job. I think it was both at Triumph, which I took happily. There was a monumental shift in this space since then over the last decade or so. We at TAE have a couple dozen active job postings at any given time. And just one central theme to this all, which I love to highlight, of course, this is plasma physicists, engineers, designers uh, in high demand, naturally. And even more so, people who can bring various experiences and broad range of skill sets because fusion being so multifaceted so many technologies need to work together seamlessly that the most successful people that we've hired at TAE they actually came not from 
the fusion field, they came from adjacent fields and they brought with them their broader perspectives on challenging engineering and physical tasks. So keep that in mind. And I wanted to point something out. Everyone who thinks that maybe fusion is still a young industry, I want to point out this picture right here. You're seeing it right now. The guy on the left needs no introduction, but this month, October of 1920, this is now the 100th anniversary of Sir Arthur Eddington's famous paper, The Internal Constitution of the Stars, which theorized nuclear fusion for the first time. So all of my panelists are now working in a 100-year-old industry. And what a cool picture that there's Sir Arthur Eddington right there. So with that, thank you so much for this opportunity and thank you to all of our guests. This was fabulous. Thank you so much, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Those were my four fusion power panelists from Commonwealth Fusion Systems, General Fusion, TAE Technologies, and the U.S. Eater Program. I want to thank all these companies for setting this up and Tyler Andrews at the Carolina Chapters of NAYGN for letting me host this event. I think this was also a fitting topic for episode 100, don't you think? I want to thank my wife, Ashley, who lets me take days off work sometimes and lets me spend hours cutting these shows together. I also want to dedicate this episode to my dad, Dr. Stephen Dowenhauer, who we lost last year just as I was getting started speaking on behalf of this show. Dad was always so supportive and the show gave us a lot to talk about in the last few years I had with him. Now for me, my work is a job, but this show is my career. And for those of you out there who feel like your job doesn't get you where you want to go, for me, this podcast has given me a chance to be on an even level with anyone in the industry and it has been such an exciting ride. We're certainly not going anywhere and we have many more episodes in store. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode as well as the slides from the panel on energy-cast.com as well as on instagram and parlor at host energy and twitter at host energy cast all guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release so far no complaints be sure to leave us a positive review on itunes that gets the word out music was produced by sean stroop at stroop loops and that wraps up episode 100 the platinum episode be sure to join us next week when we discuss the right mix of storage with some of the nation's leading experts until then i'm jay downhower we'll see you next time